Good morning, everyone. Uh, so my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here along with Chris. And a uh, particular welcome if you're in the room here. I don't recognise everyone's face. You're really welcome if you're new. And, and I really hope you have been made to feel welcome. And that continues later. And also, obviously, online if you are visiting us. It's great to have you with us. Uh, so we are in this uh, series in Hebrews. And if you have a Bible... Uh, we're in Hebrews 6, and if you don't have a Bible and would like one, I'm sure Andy there has got one, so just raise your hand. It is, this is a good discipline. Let me just tell you, it's a good discipline just to have Scripture. In one sense, whether it's electronic or you know, um, physical, whatever, it's a good discipline because you can check out what the person's saying. And also, I think one of the dynamics that happens is God loves to honour his word, and as you kind of have his word open, he brings things out that don't come out in a talk or whatever, and there's just something there for you. So there may be a gem there if you have the word that, uh, that does not get preached from the front. There'll be lots of gems from the front, but that may not, there may not be one of them, all right? Okay. Um, just before we get into the word, though, um, just before the service... Uh, we prayed, and I just had this kind of picture. We believe God speaks immediately, kind of through prophetic, what we call prophetic pictures or words, and a sense of that uh, called gifts of the Spirit. We can talk about that if that you're not familiar with that. And um, I just kind of quick flash of, and it was like a picture of tanks, you know, rushing through open land, a bit like we've seen on the news, to be fair. But I thought that it reminded me of. Um, the start of World War II, Blitzkrieg, when Hitler sent his tanks into Poland and they just flattened nations, you know, lightning war it meant. They were just rapid. And they, they went right across Europe. And to be fair, the thing that held them up at Western East was firstly the English Channel. It's no small thing that, you know, through history, the English Channel has been a, a safety catch for us in this nation. And then secondly, the Russian winter. I think there are you know, forces rampaging across Europe that are detrimental to our faith. I think there are worldviews. Moral relativism, no absolute. Certainly, you know, scripture is not authoritative. Um, you know, no, no morality, kind of anything goes. Uh, consumerism is another one. Individualistic society. These are the forces that rampage. And I believe we, have, we mustn't kid ourselves, folks. We are in this culture, therefore we will be infected unless we are intentional about holding out. Now, how do we hold out against these worldviews? And this goes for all ages. I think it is things like holding on to Scripture, being filled with the Spirit such that our consciences are tender and sensitive, having a will that is surrendered and yielded to God. Those things together may be a combination. It may not feel like we're advancing, but it may be that we can stand in the face of those forces. And let's be honest, those forces are from the enemy. And Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about, you know, just stand. There are times it's enough just to stand. And I do wonder, hadn't planned to say any of this before the, the service, but I do wonder whether we are not coming into times when it will be enough for us just to stand. That the undercurrents arraying around us in society will so be contra-biblical teaching that, friends, it will be enough for us just to stand. 
we may not be on the right side of moral orthodoxy. People will look at us. There was a time, surveys, what have you, what religion, what faith. People just put Christian because what it meant to them is it meant I'm a good person. That's not the case anymore. If you say you're a Christian, you are not saying to people, I'm a good person, are we? So, Father, I just pray as we come to your word, and, and I think Hebrews 6 that I'm talking about today kind of speaks to this. Lord, Lord, we need a culture in our churches that holds on to your word, that yields to your spirit, that allows your refining fire to purge us of our wrong thinking, of the accumulation of junk from the world. And we need cleansing of that, Lord. And I just pray, even this process this morning, as we come to your word now, I pray your spirit would be free. Why don't you just, seek, why don't you just consciously, intentionally now, yield to the spirit. Yield to his teaching. Say to him, God, I really do want you first in my life. So spirit, we pray, would you anoint speaker and hearers together that your word would be fruitful among us. Ha. Defend the Bible, I would as soon defend a lion, said Spurgeon. You've just got to let it loose. So God, do your work among us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, okay. So there is an encouragement in the passage this morning to keep right on to the end of the road. Now, some of us of a certain generation, that may be familiar to. For some reason, I dragged it out. I do not know where I came from. Turns out, I thought, that's a song, and I Google it. It's by a guy called Harry Louder. Did anyone know that? One or two? Oh, yes, there's one or two. I'm not saying anything, but there was a lot of grey hairs in the hands that just went. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, okay? That's not... And uh, he wrote this song. It's not a big deal. He wrote this song about, uh, about his son, actually. He lost his son in World War I, it turns out, and... Uh, you know, when you get weary, keep right on to the end of the road. He was Scottish, wasn't he, Faye? He was Scottish. He wrote other great songs like Stop Your Tickling Jock and Roaming in the Gloaming. Yeah? That's a freebie. All of that is a freebie this morning. Okay. So there's an encouragement in the passage we're going to look at this morning and actually in the whole book of Hebrews to persevere for us to keep right on to the end of the road. We set off on a journey, not so long back, at, long back. Ali and I in our Mazda, this is our, this is our car here. The only reason I have this picture and I'm pleased with our car there is because it was the one time in about three years it got cleaned. Okay, and I thought <laughs> I'm going to take a photo of that. So this is our Mazda. We set off to the northeast in our Mazda. It wasn't on this day, another day. Ali and I to go and visit Ali's mum. She may be watching now. It's actually the anniversary of uh, my wife's called Alison and uh, her dad. Margaret's husband, Noel, died two years ago today. So just remember my lovely wife and, and uh, mother-in-law uh, today. Anyway, we set off to visit her. She lives in Northumberland. Isn't that right? Lovely part of the world. And uh, anyway, we're driving up and a, and a warning light goes off my engine. Warning, DPF malfunction. Warning, DPF malfunction. Now, there are some petrol heads. Does anyone know what that means? Anyone know what a DPF is? Go on, Adrian. Diesel particulate filter is the correct answer. I had no clue. It just, it just looks serious. Now, my understanding, because you start to Google these things, and I've Googled it a bit since, and uh, this may be completely, you know, this is above my pay grade here. But uh, the diesel particulate filter in a diesel engine collects soot that goes around in the system. It collects it, and then at a certain time, it 
it kind of, it seems to me, it fires up that diesel particular. Like I say, this might be completely off, but anyway, <laughs> this is what mine is. Anyway, what it does do is it, it called, it's called, it regenerates. It regenerates in the system to burn off this soot that has accumulated in the system to get rid of it. It regenerates. Am I right so far? Does anyone? I am. I'm pretty sure I'm right on that. Okay. Anyway, so it gets rid of all this gunk through a fresh start called regeneration. Anyone see where I'm going here? However, the sensor was out on this diesel particulate filter and it wasn't regenerating. And I'm, we're there. We're in Yorkshire. We've got as far as Yorkshire. We're Googling. And it says the engine might blow up. <laughs> it's like, Ali, I think we need to go home. We can't just go up and then not get the thing done. So sadly, we had to turn around and head back to rugby and we didn't get up to Northumberland. So there was a faulty system here that did not lead to thorough regeneration such that the car might not last the journey. It would not keep on to the end of the road. And there's a great question. Are our churches healthy systems and cultures where people are regenerated, saved, converted thoroughly? I remember Steve Hall, former pastor of this church, said, what you save people with, you save them too. If the gospel we proclaim is not the full gospel, if the God we exalt is not God as he is, but a God made in our making, less than God. If he does not call us to holiness and purity, if we win people with an insufficient, deficient gospel, that is where they will live. And regeneration will not be thorough and chances are they will not last to the end of the road. So we need churches, we need cultures in our churches that see people leave the accumulation of the junk behind. They get, they've got to repent, they've got to turn around. And maybe you're here this morning and you've not heard the gospel. Some of that is going to come out in this, that we are to leave behind the world and our ways and our will and we're to turn. Metanoia, the Greek word for repentance, we turn around to face Christ and head towards Christ. And we place faith in him. And we're to go on to maturity, to last to the end of the road, to persevere. And the problem in Hebrews 6, the passage we're going to look at today was, they had a faulty system. They had a faulty system that was not leading to regeneration. And the writer's concern is that these people will not persevere. So what was wrong with the system? Well, I think as we see here, there's going to be some parallels with perhaps our Western churches. Firstly, the problem was there was an immaturity. There was an immaturity. Next slide. Thanks, Anthony. It says in Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, verse 3. Let's read this. Thanks, Anthony. So the writer has been talking about Jesus, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's involved teaching. It's about how Jesus replaced the whole sacrificial system and the priesthood and all of that. So it's involved teaching. And he says, concerning this or concerning him, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the words of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. 
For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. He's, he's conveying here, isn't he? Hey, listen, guys, you guys may, are in danger of being immature. In fact, some of you are. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instructions about baptisms, interesting, baptisms plural, lots of conversation around what that means, and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So there was an immaturity. The Hebrews, it said, have become dull of hearing. Other translations put it slow to learn. It means slothful. Slothful. They become a bit laid back and lazy. And their immaturity was their responsibility. Because there was something they could do about it. They'd not moved beyond breast milk. And that wasn't okay. I was talking with one of our parents recently about them potty training their child. What stage is your child at? Potty training. I can't remember potty training, either my own or my children's. So we're talking about potty training and the, you know, the child's kind of, I guess, making mishaps and what have you. That's okay for a two-year-old. It's not okay for a 35-year-old. Can you imagine someone coming in here in diapers and saying, what are you doing? I've, I don't know how to go to the toilet. We would go, what? I mean, I think there'd be something in us that would go, that's, that's kind of weird. But it's, there's an element of it that's just, yeah, it makes us feel uncomfortable. What, what are you doing? And yet it may be, and the writer here is kind of saying this. I didn't use the illustration of milk, obviously. But the writer is saying here, the problem is we accept that spiritually in our churches. That's what the writer's saying. There's an immaturity. And I fear, I think there's an immaturity to us, to me, in our churches in the West. Why? Because of that culture I've just talked about that is individualistic, that it's all about me. It's all about me. It is not all about me. It's about Christ. It's about me yielding my life to Christ, about paying the cost. And yet it's me like I'm this... You know, I'm a consumer and I want it my way. And I strop about. And there's an immaturity. To, is this ringing any bells with anyone or is it just me? Please tell me this is not just me. I don't think it is. You know, our consumer Christianity, I thought Erica made a great point a few weeks back about, I think it was in the lines of consumer Christianity and we want this and we want the blessing and we want the fun and we want the excitement. And then she said, well, Jesus didn't have that. North Koreans do not have that. God, what's my gifting? What am I called to? You know, where's, where's my blessing, Lord? I don't think North Korean Christians think like that. But who is more mature? Us or them? Us? Would our faith stand persecution like their faith stands? Hallelujah. That's why we need to pray, and we're going to get onto this, the persecuted church, because it does us good to think about them and remember them. So there's too many of us, aren't there? And listen, listen, listen. I, I sat there and I'm just thinking, I hope, I pray, Lord, I pray. I don't want this to come as condemning, but I, I think it needs to be challenging. 
And I'm challenging myself first, first and foremost. I really am. Is our faith robust? Are you confident in your faith? Do you have a sense you're going to persevere to the end? What if persecution does come? I was talking with my Canadian, um, well, he's a Canadian pastor, he's my, an English brother-in-law. And he was saying about, there, they, they sensed that Trudeau, the president, and this might be, a, I shouldn't have cited names, but anyway, government powers, authorities are kind of going after churches, for example, in their charitable status, because of their worldviews on certain moral issues. The governments are going after them, you know, not wanting them to have charitable status. Who knows? Why, why not? It, it doesn't make sense to me in one sense that if there are certain moral stances or, you know, ways we think as Bible-believing Christians, if that is quite anti to the worldview, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And in fact, I'm half thinking, why, why hasn't it happened before now why governments haven't come after us on some of these issues? But they may do. Are we going to stand up? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to stand on biblical ground? Like I say, I just, I just think we need refining. There are too many of us, aren't there? Christians, we're dependent. You know, toddlers, infants are dependent. Too many of us perhaps don't contribute in whatever way. We're needy. And I understand there are broken people. I, I've known what brokenness is, and I am needy. But we can't just live in that place. We're called to maturity. So what caused this immaturity? An inability to embrace even elementary teaching. It's really interesting. Maturity here is very much goes hand in hand with embracing and engaging with scripture and scriptural teaching. It's what it means for us to be an evangelical church is we want to live biblically. It's one of the things it means. We want to live biblically and engage with scripture. The writer says, oh, I had so much more to tell you about Melchizedek and Jesus and priesthood. And he does get to that. But he says, but you're not ready for it. I don't, need to, I don't want to have to lay again, he says, foundations of repentance and faith. He says instructions, and it seems to, there's a couple of kind of initiation instructions. I shouldn't have to go through these initiation instructions again about, you know, kind of how you get saved. Baptisms could be, you know, obviously it may well be water baptism. Baptism filling in the spirit. Baptism of suffering. Jesus had a baptism of suffering. Laying on of hands, impartation of the Spirit, calling, anointing for ministry. And then I don't want to, he says, I've got to, you know, I've got to lay again these foundations, these instructions about end of life teaching, resurrection of the dead, the judgment. He says, you should know this stuff. I mean, I have to say, you look at this and you think, that's elementary. What was the, what was the difficult stuff like? They had become perhaps hearers of the word and not doers of it. And maybe they just didn't know the word in the first place. You can only do the word if you know it. There is a challenge for us. I understand this. Why, again, I want to encourage us, brothers, sisters, we must engage with the word. I don't just, and this isn't enough. In fact, I would rather every one of us made some attempt at you know, regular, whether it's daily or not, but certainly regular Bible reading and we'll go without the Sunday sermon. Do I hear an amen in the house of God? Some of you may go, yeah, I'll buy into that. Only on condition we make the effort ourselves. And I understand we're busy. I understand that. But what are we standing on then? What are the foundations then if it's not the word? And we need to do that individually. 
our cells. And we can help you with that. If you need help with that, we're going to do a series soon where we're going to try and help with some of that anyway. It's possible that there were Jewish equivalents of these teachings, these instructions and foundations, and that some of these Christians, these, remember, Hebrew background, Jewish background Christians, were hiding in their Jewish faith, in their former Jewish faith, such that they hadn't fully stepped into owning Christ in front of their Hebrew, former Hebrew brothers and sisters. Um, George Guthrie says this, they may have been, look at this, when I read this, I thought, oh, I winced. They may have been trying to survive with a minimal Christianity in order to avoid alienating their Jewish friends and relatives. How many of you read that and go, oh, oh. they may have been trying to survive with a minimal Christianity in order to avoid alienating their Western culture, friends and families. Can't do it. That's not what we're called to. Now, I'm not saying let's go around causing offence, and there are some Christians and some Christian organisations who I think do a bit of that. We're not called to that. But let's own Christ. Let's own Christ in his word. Sorry. I'm just going to be kinder to Mike. Okay, moving on. That was getting a bit challenging. I thought a bit of light relief. Okay, so friends, how mature is our faith? Are we engaging in the word? Are we, this is a good one, are we confident of persevering? We can work on that. We, just like you can exercise physically, you can exercise spiritually. Okay, let's crack on. So what was the possible danger of this faulty culture? What was going to happen because of this faulty culture? Secondly, there was an impossibility. There was an impossibility. Look at what it says in Hebrews 6, 4 to 12. So he's talked to these believers and he said to them, look, you're in danger of being immature. And this is what could happen. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, now, I don't know who you've got in mind he's talking about here. We'll come to that. But just ask yourself that question. Who are these people that have experienced all this and then fallen away? He says, it is impossible for them to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground, that, and then he uses an illustration of people that are like this. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is, for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. We want to be fruitful ground. He goes on though. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. We want a church, we want a culture that is good ground, that yields fruit. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. So he's confident these Hebrews will get there. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. So there's a responsibility on us so as to realise the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, 
but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So what he's saying here is this. He warns of those who have started out in the faith. They did repent, okay? But trials and persecution have come and they've gone off course. And if you like, if they were a car, they're now in the ditch. If a car can be shipwrecked, they've been shipwrecked in their faith. He warns of those who fall away. And the phrase, the Greek word, from which we get apostates, those that fall away in the faith, those that have a faith, this is apostasy, those that had a faith, but have now fallen away. And whatever else, whoever these people are, and I don't know whether you've got in mind who you think they are, but whoever these people are, you don't want to be in that group. Because of what he goes on to say is, it's impossible for these people to be brought back to repentance. They're in danger of being cursed and burned. Now, what does that mean? Who does he have in mind here? And those of you that know your Bibles reasonably well will have read this passage and will know kind of some of the discussions around this passage. This is a very contentious passage and handled badly, it is worrying. Raymond Brown says this, it's probably true to say that these warnings here and elsewhere in Hebrews have caused more unnecessary anxiety to believers than almost any verses in the New Testament. Why? Because we ask ourselves, am I one of these? That's why. Am I one of these? If you are concerned about that, chances are you're not. Because you haven't grown deaf to the spirit. You have not become dull of hearing if you are worried and troubled by that. If there's conviction that I don't want to be like that. So is this folks, listen, is this folks who have associated with churches? Is he talking here about people who have associated with churches but not actually thoroughly come to faith? And again, we win, what we win people with, we win them too. And if we've got a superficial gospel, it is possible to have people among us following Christ superficially but who do not have a genuine faith. And we do them no favours by leaving them in that position, do we? If we let people think they've got a faith, think they're okay, and actually the consequences are far more serious, we we owe it to them to have a culture that sees thorough regeneration. I don't think this is people that have not come to faith. Hey, listen, there's a sense in which you pays your money, you make your choice on this passage. So I'm just going to say what I think and why, but we can discuss later. Okay, I I think it is people that have come to faith. Why? Well, look at what verses 4 and 5 say. How does this read to you? In the case of those, remember, he's, he's writing a letter definitely to believers and he's warned them. And then the warning surely then would relate to believers is one reason why I think it's believers. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and taste doesn't just mean a superficial thing there. It means to experience something, who have experienced the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have experienced the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That seems to me to be talking about Christians. Okay, There's an argument to say it's not, but it seems to me to be talking about Christians. And as well, it talks about them, they're not being able to be renewed to repentance. And, and throughout the New Testament, repentance is used of believers. So put that all together, and in my mind, I think these folks are Christians. Now, are they then... Christians who have lost their salvation. And this is what we call an Arminian perspective. 
Now, we all come to Scripture with our own understanding of the rest of Scripture, and I come with mine. Okay, you've got to, it's got to be based on the whole counsel of God. But my understanding of the whole of Scripture is a believer who has come to the place where they've owned Christ, where they've said, Jesus, I will never be good enough. I know I'm going to sin in the future. I will never be able to make up for that. I yield now to you once for all. A person that does that and owns Christ in that way genuinely cannot lose their salvation. And we just haven't got time to go into this now. But that's what I think Scripture teaches. And again, we could talk about that later. Now, it is important here to remember this passage is exhortation. It's not theological teaching. It's an exhortation to persevere. Like I'm trying to say, I'm, that's, I think that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm trying to exhort us to persevere. So therefore, some of the terms used are not defined really clearly and specifically and theologically. So when he talks about things like they're in danger of being cursed or burned, we may read it and go, that's hell. So a Christian can lose their salvation because they can be burned. Well, he doesn't define the terms specifically. But here's the main reason why I think as well, apart from the whole teaching of the Bible saying that you can't lose your salvation, is this. I think this is Christians who lose their reward. I think it's Christians who lose their reward. And there is similar language to this refining fire used elsewhere in Scripture. Don't know whether we're tracking here, but let's have a look. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. Paul says like this, and I apologise for the gender-specific language. It's out of version of the Bible that I, I didn't go through and recorrect it. So no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Similar foundation. He talked about foundation before, didn't he? Now, if any, this is another writer. Now, if any person builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious straw, stones, wood, hay, straw, sorry, not precious straw, wood, hay, straw, each person's work will become evident for the day, meaning judgment, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. So a person's work will be revealed with fire. It will go through the test of fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. It's beginning to sound like burning, isn't it? If any person's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any person's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So I think, Christ, uh, I think Scripture teaches that Christians can so walk away from God that they may yet be saved in that day, but only just. Only just. Now, they've got all eternity to pour out their love and thankfulness for the fact that Christ kept them anyway. But, but why, why subject yourself? Why not want to honour Christ and gain a reward? Paul wanted a reward. It's no good us saying as believers, well, I don't want a reward. Well, Paul did. It was good enough for him. It's probably good enough for us. Let's live to honour Christ. Because who wants the shame and regret in that day of having a lived a life unworthy of Christ and that being revealed before everyone. Why, why would we do that? Why would we do that? So let's get our act together and live for him now. Because there's going to come a time when you're going to go, I wish I'd lived for you, Jesus. 
And let me say, brother, sister, if you're here, if you're watching online, this may be, this may be speaking to some of us. There's opportunity to change. Similar language to the passage in Hebrews 6. But later in Hebrews 10, we have an even possibly even stronger warning, which again, I think, is clearly to believers. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, if we, he's been talking to believers, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, so I think it's Christians, isn't it here? No sacrifice for sins is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume also the enemies of God, I think. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished, disciplined, who has trampled... So I don't think punishment there means sent to hell. I think it means discipline. And the word is interchangeable. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be disciplined... who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. He died for us. That death. Why would we not live for him? To honour him. How could we do that? But if we choose to live willfully against him and dishonouring him and live in a life where people look at us and go, call yourself a Christian. We are trampling the Son of God underfoot. And we have treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified us. It's clear these people are Christians. The blood has sanctified them, but they've nonetheless trampled Christ underfoot. We do not want churches that produce Christians like that. The system, if that's the system, let's change the system. And who has insulted the spirit of gaze? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We're going to be called to account. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But brother, sister, friend, we don't have to fall into the hands of the living God in this way. If we seek to live... Hey, listen, I'm not talking about... Alex and Nicole, you're not long married. I'm guessing that even in your marriage, there's a little, every now and again, a little bit of friction. I'm just, making, I'm just playing a hunch, okay? I'm guessing Alex, I mean, obviously Nicole is, you know, the perfect wife to you, Alex. But there probably are times when you're not that to her, okay? Well, you wouldn't be the perfect wife anyway. Although, okay? So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about stress. I'm not talking about the things we say to our loved ones. I'm not talking about you know, getting things wrong as a parent and, you know, and just some of the uncaring ways. And, oh, I wish I'd been more thoughtful there. And some of the other stuff that we can sometimes think is the sin that blasphemes the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about willful, conscious, ongoing, turning our back on Christ and our Christian faith. And living to please ourselves in a way we just know is wrong. Well, we know to start off with. The problem is we harden our conscience. That's not going to be good. To live that way isn't going to be good. R.T. Kendall calls this being stone deaf to the spirit, where we just don't hear God anymore because we've so hardened our hearts. Finally then, and we'll crack on with this, How do we avoid this blow-up? How do we avoid this? Well, in verse 12, and I haven't put it here, there's an imitating. 
He says, be imitators of those who faith persevered. Be imitators. Well, who does he ask us to imitate? Well, in a precursor to Hebrews 11, you remember Hebrews 11 is coming, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Persevere by faith. You're not going to see it now. It's going to be unpleasant now. It's going to be tough now. But by faith. Why? Because in that day, I may get a reward. And far from it, when I feel shame, in that day, Jesus is going to exalt us if we've lived by faith. And let me just tell you, there are some of us here who do not do upfront ministry, and you're going to be right down the front. You're going to get the best seats. No one wants to sit on the front seat in church. I don't know. But on that day, Jesus is going to say, come and sit here. You didn't, no one saw you. No one saw what you were doing, but I saw. I saw. You come and sit here. Pride of place. Paul Rogers, you go to the back. So we're to imitate. And he talks about Abraham. Just put the passage up there, Anthony. I probably won't read it. But it talks about Abraham here. Waited patiently. Received the promise. Inherited. He persevered. I love, love, love what it says in Romans 4. This has spoken to me so many times. Romans 4. Uh, Anthony, if you don't mind flicking through there a couple, thanks. I think it's uh, great stuff. This is Romans 4, talking about Abraham, who against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. When it's so bleak, there's no hope. Persevere. And so became the father of many nations. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. And I just pray now, if there's some of us here, perseverance is hard, it's tough. We're tempted to fall away. We're tempted to throw Christ off. We're tempted not to be obedient. I just pray that you will not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but will be strengthened in your faith, just like Abraham, giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. What has God promised to you, friend? Do not waver through unbelief. Hold on. It's coming. It's coming. And really, Abraham here was holding on to Jesus. It said in the passage, like I say, we didn't read it just because of time, but Hebrews 6 there, that Jesus, he, said, he talks about a hope that's an anchor, and really that anchor that's gone into the veil is Jesus. He's, he's the anchor and he's the hope. So we hold on to Jesus. It's why Jesus needs to be precious to us. It's not just, it's not faith in faith. It's not faith in a church. It's faith in Jesus. So we need a living relationship with Jesus. There are some, some sermons, some talks that we do where we clearly try to apply them. Because there is, they may be talking about very practical issues, money or relationships. This is not one of those sermons. And I don't know how to apply this in one sense. Because I think this is quite a sobering word. So all I want to do to finish then are ask some questions for us to take away. We need to take our faith seriously and take these questions away. So am I walking in the fear of the Lord. It is not a bad thing to walk in the fear of the Lord. 
Now, I do not mean to be scared stiff of a, of a father who's going to beat us or going to be harsh to us, but has the potential to discipline us in a loving way. We are to walk. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's fair to say, I think, that probably in too many of our Western churches, the fear of the Lord is not sufficiently present in the system. Would you agree with that? Is my life fruitful for God? Has my life been changed? Has regeneration been thorough? We can help you. We can talk stuff through. We can pray with you. We can help you get into the word and understand who this God is such that there is life change. If you have come to Christ, got some sort of, you know, a vaccination, inoculation, some small measure of Christianity, but there has not been life change, your regeneration may not yet have been thorough. And finally then, am I maturing? I really encourage us. Let's just take those questions away. And in a quiet moment, maybe today, maybe this week, I encourage you, come back to this passage. Don't let it cause you fear. If you're worried, you're a Christian who's becoming hard of hearing, or, you know, am I, am I in danger of, you know, this refining fire? It's probably the case that you're sensitive to the Spirit and wanting to do right by God, and that's good. My hunch is, if you know that passage in Hebrews 6 is speaking to you as it's intended for some, you probably know who you are. You know you've been walking away from God and hardening your heart.